Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in a way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and you would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Oliver Bainbridge. Oliver is the owner of the Can Do Pub Company Limited and Crossed Anchors Brewery in Exmouth, Devon. Oliver, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Thank you. It's such a pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Um, normally, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, let's start there, because it's proven to be one of the more significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life. But just how has it affected you and your business? Well, uh, for us, the, obviously, the lockdown was, um, was pretty big for the, for the, for the pub company. Um, we found that uh, having our pub closed was a bit of a problem, um, but uh, we have a brewery as well on site, um, and that that kind of really uh, enabled us to really focus on that side of the business. Uh, and we realised because we have such a good network of, of customers who who are drinkers who like to buy beer, we realised we could tap into that and really uh, push the brewery forward. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there was a big sort of online and through social media campaign to try and uh, galvanise interest in the brewery and say to people basically that they can still support us and our independent business, even though they can't come out to the pub by buying our beer. Uh, um, and within about four weeks, we were basically up to brewing the same levels of beer we were before lockdown. Um, and uh, we, we, we had to completely change the whole business. But you know, it seemed to do really, really well, uh, delivering mm. out beer to all across Exmouth and, and East Devon. So actually, it's been, a, it's been a, a good opportunity to kind of refocus and recalibrate the business around what we are now beginning to see in terms of the on-trade. So the pub side of our business is going to be damaged, I think, for quite a while. So it's been a useful remodeling of the business. And that remodelling could hold the business in good stead for quite some time, because as you've rightly said there, there are some indications already of what could be a little bit of a COVID hangover in the industry, because even as um, we start to have a working vaccine in place, people are getting vaccinated and hopefully by one or two years time, the virus itself is no longer an issue. I think there will always be that little bit of hesitancy in consumer confidence there will be a little bit of anxiety that's um, there in a prolonged sense so it could take a while for the uh, the sector on the pub side of things really to recover hospitality as a whole really is going to be enduring a testing time i think i think it is yeah i mean uh, essentially hospitality a lot of it is about habit it's about people regularly meeting for the pub quiz or going out with their mates after football and going and having a pint in the pub and their habits that are built up over a period of time. So if you go through a period of disconnecting that and breaking that, it can take quite a while to, to reestablish those habits again. Um, I think more than that, though, I think, um, you know, the, the kind of the message coming out from the government has been very kind of, you know, the underlying sort of message has been about 
you know, how people socialize and where people socialize and the potential impacts of that. And I think people, certainly people of, a, of, a, of an older generation are starting to take the view now that perhaps pubs uh, and those broad social spaces are, are less accessible to them than perhaps they were before which I think is a real shame because I, I think it's going to be very difficult for us as an industry to, to convince people that it is uh, safe to come back in. I mean, it is our responsibility to offer a very, very safe business and a very safe and well-managed um, uh, environment because that's how we, that's how we change uh, the, the, the conversation for our customers. But in essence, really, it feels a bit like there's been a, a bit of a body blow that not even mm. we can, can, uh, can do much about. Exactly right, which is why the business has had to pivot because it is part of being in business um, to be able to negotiate difficulties and challenges as and when they arise, even if they are ultimately beyond your control. It's all about um, adaptability within leadership. And we've seen an awful lot of that during this time um, in particular. And what we've also seen is leaders having to step up and really be um, a beacon of hope and a source of inspiration, motivation, and crucially reassurance as well for everybody around them. Because there has been a lot of anxiety about employment status, about health, what's going to be happening amid all of the uncertainty and as a business executive it falls upon the, the responsibility falls upon your shoulders really to try and provide that to the people that you work with yeah i mean i yeah absolutely and i think i think this has really brought out um you know for all to see really the kind of uh, the good the bad and, and and the ugly in in terms of leadership styles really and i think um a lot of us have been looking to our political leaders to try and give us a steer mm. on on how to behave and, and and how to how to lead well. And I think I think what I've learned, not necessarily from what what I've seen, but from from the experiences of, of the reactions of people, is there's a, there's a couple of real important keys. And for me, they are you've got to communicate with your teams and your customers. That's absolutely uh, critical. You've got to make sure that the message gets across. They understand the plan. They understand what it is we're trying to achieve. And actually, you can give them quite a lot of detailed information because people are scared and people are frightened and they really, really want to know that you're informing them based on a, on a reality that they understand as well. And that ultimately keys into the key thing, which I, th I think we've got to be really honest with people as well. I think we've got to be honest with our teams in particular, and we've got to let them know that, you know, we're in our business, we're, we're, we've had to do a, a very, very detailed risk assessment of, of how we want our business to run moving forward. And we have to really get them involved in, in delivering that and mm. get them involved in seeing that uh, and, and, and creating that because that's how you get buy-in. And I think it's really important, you know, that, that we're communicating really clearly with people and that we're being really, really honest about the risks mm. and about how we mitigate them and how we fill them with confidence to not only come back to work but come back as customers as well, which, you know, which is key, I think. Communication's absolutely critical and um, it's been a little bit of a challenge as well during this time having to sort of take that um, position of leading from a distance during that period when a lot of things were being done remotely. Have you found that you've had to do that, have people working from home and get into that sort of uh, structure or have you found that largely throughout this period you've been getting people back into the workspace and it's largely been as, as it was? Absolutely. I mean, for us, it largely people have been coming back into the business. In the hospitality industry, it's, it's all about the, the, the building and the service. 
Um, and so uh, basically within three weeks of lockdown, the brewing team were back in and we were pretty much scaling up for full-time brewing again. Um, and then as soon as the pub opened, we called back all of our staff, uh, some of them on a part-time basis, but most of them came back into the business again and, you know, were, were, were became part of the working environment really, really quickly. And, and I think that that was a really positive thing for them and a positive thing for us. We needed to feel like, you know, our business still existed and could exist. Um, and, uh, yeah, bringing the team back was key to that, really. And how has it been sort of managing the team from a mental health point of view? Uh, because I can imagine that there had been one or two sort of quite difficult conversations that would have had to be had just to try and provide some reassurance for people. And there might have been one or two worried faces as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think there have been some staff who uh, live in, uh, who have families who are shielding. Um, and, you know, that has been part of our our kind of conversation with a lot of our team. But again, you know, once we get them in, once we really openly and honestly talk them through the risk assessment, um, and we're all given an opportunity to input into it, and we're all given an opportunity to, to pull out what works for the business and what works for the team, for the most part, we were able to overcome a lot of those concerns from people and from staff. And and actually, I, I think it, it's a richer, uh, better environment as a result as well, you know, we, 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 we would be uh, ridiculous to try and think that we could come up with all of the uh, all of the answers to our risk assessment. We needed to make sure that we were talking to people uh, and it's informed the way we operate and it, and the business as a whole has benefited from that. Um, um, we're, we're very aware in our industry that uh, we have to prove ourselves to people that pubs are a safe place to come to. Um, and uh, and so we can't take any risks on that. We have to absolutely, you know, have a very... Uh, you know, a very open and, and clean way of working. And um, reflecting on the amount of time that you've worked in uh, the uh, the hospitality industry, um, would you say that COVID-19 has been the biggest learning curve that you've ever experienced? Or would you say that you've maybe overcome greater challenges in some respect? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the economic impact of COVID-19, it hasn't started yet, I don't think. Mm. Um, my business has come back quite strongly and I feel quite positive at the moment. The economic impact is coming and it will take six months to a year to two years to really bed in. I, I think anyone who, who, who takes the view that, that we are you know, over the worst, I think is is on the wrong side of the, of the track there. I think I think as a whole, our industry will need to take a deep breath. And I think, you know, it's, it's going to be hard trading, not only hard trading from the point of view of how people interact with the hospitality industry moving, moving forward, but we're going to have an awful lot of people who are unemployed. We're going to have a, a, a quite a big recession, quite a big downturn. And these things always affect retail businesses, and I think we're going to we're going to we're going to feel that. I don't think it's even started yet. The, the hard times. Um, in terms of how this uh, sort of features in the in the general um, twenty years I've been in the in the industry, for me, really, we've we've in the industry we've had lots and lots of challenges coming up. You know, the smoking ban, drink driving, mm. all of those sorts of things, and the key has always always been communicating with your staff and communicating with your customers and making sure people let, uh, understand what's happening. When the smoking ban came in, in my pub, we had four pubs at that point and they were all got busier. And it was because we made it really clear that we were embracing these changes and moving forward with those changes, you know, uh, as something that, that we were, that we supported and that we were enabling. And I think, I think, you know, 
I, I think th- this will be the same with COVID. People just cannot expect to reopen their pubs and hope everything is going to be the same as it was before, because that's just simply not the case. Um, and I think you know we need to we need to do, go for a period of of real um, uh, introspection and mm. having a real look at what it is we're doing um, and find that what the customer really wants again now because we have a really good opportunity to do that or we have an opportunity to ignore it and and, and I think we'll 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 have problems if we try and do that. Mm. There's an important point to take away from that and I think and it's the fact that I think you're absolutely right in the sense that what COVID-19 has done is it's provided us with a period of self-reflection to really think about the way we do things and we now have yeah. to understand that we are entering a very changing world and we're going to have to be able to um, adjust in all walks of life to what the, what the challenges that that's going to uh, throw up to be able to survive in business for sure. Um, yeah. Thinking about the um, immediate future for the hospitality industry, um, of course just last week the Prime Minister announced new national restrictions that will apply in England, perhaps at least until the end of March, um, with one of those most notable restrictions being um, a closing curfew for the hospitality sector between the hours of 10pm at night and 5am in the morning. That's going to have an effect. But with that sort of setback now in place, what is the hospitality industry going to be doing to cope over the course of the uh, the next uh, few months, do you think? And indeed, where do you see yourselves being as a business in 12 months' time? I would like to talk about the future. Yeah, I mean, for, for our business, um, it, it became very clear to us as soon as we reopened that the sort of after 10 o'clock trade was not going to work for us anyway, um, just because... Um, people after 10 o'clock are normally got a bit more alcohol inside them. They tend to um, socialize in a, in, a, in a much more open way. I think, I think the bottom line really is that the hospitality industry exists because we're trying to, we're trying to get rid of social distancing. That, that's what the hospitality industry exists for. So when you're in an environment where social distancing is the thing we need to, we need to, you know, we need to start to adhere to, the hospitality industry very quickly finds itself um, exposed uh, in terms of its place in the community. So we took a decision in the business as soon as we reopened that there was really no point in trading past 10 o'clock anyway um, because we, we we were aware that the, the way our customers want to socialize is they want to get some drink on board and then they want to basically break down social distancing. So so we've been trading ever since the end of lockdown Um uh, in in a um, closing at ten o'clock, and we were always keeping our our tables to a maximum of six anyway. So actually, the most recent announcement in terms of our business probably won't affect us too much. Um, how how I believe this will impact the rest of the industry moving forwards, I think um, I think people will gradually absorb this and will understand this. Um, I think it's very very confusing at the moment. It's, it's open to all kinds of interpretation, um, and I think it, it, it's going to take people a bit of time to really kind of get how they continue to use hospitality industry, but can do it within a safe and meaningful way. So, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a challenge. Certainly, the next six months, you know, we're in Devon. We rely on the holiday trade. The next six months will be a, a challenge, so it will be about massively focusing on those cost lines and really nailing that customer service um, and uh, and continuing our di- diversification of the, of the business. Um, uh, and in our case, that means um, using the brewery more as a vehicle for getting beer out, so doing delivery services and online mm. subscriptions and those sorts of things. 
Once we get to March, there is a feeling that hopefully we'll have some kind of vaccine and things will loosen up a little bit. Uh, my feeling is that we will still have the legacy of COVID hanging over us for the following or the preceding six months from March. And I think, again, the, the, there isn't, uh, I'm not going to be jumping for joy at March saying, hooray, hooray, here we go. I'm going to be right now as a real focus to make sure we make some appropriate investments and some appropriate um, decisions around the business to ensure that when the trade does start to come back in, we're well focused and well placed to, to, to make, make uh, the best of it. But again, this is all going to be about cost lines. This is going to be all about making sure you absolutely justify every pound you spend and make sure that, that you're not wasting anything and that you're really, 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 you know, keeping yourself informed of all of your, um, all of your numbers in your business and your business statistics so that you can make quick and decisive, clear decisions um, for the benefit of the business. Certainly is going to be a huge period for business, particularly the hospitality industry. And we at the Leaders' Council certainly will be keeping a close eye on how things are getting on from that point of view. And just given how enlightening it's been, Oliver, welcoming you onto the programme this afternoon and hearing your views on this, I think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point um, nearer to March and have you back on the programme just to see how things are coming along in that respect. Yeah, great. Yeah, happy to do that. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity. It would be good and very intellectually stimulating for the listeners to be able to have a recap on uh, what's gone on in the time between as well. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on the air with us. And most importantly, until we do touch base um, again, hopefully in future, do take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not quite out of the woods with this as of yet. No, we're not. Thank you very much and the same to you and uh, great to be able to talk. I'd also reiterate that message there to every single one of our listeners today. Do please continue to look after yourselves and consider others because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, I was speaking on today's programme to Oliver Bainbridge, owner of the Can Do Pub Company Limited and Cross Dankers Brewery in Devon. Next up on today's programme, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is a politician who enjoyed a distinguished career despite being blind from birth, holding various senior positions in the cabinet of Prime Minister Tony Blair during his premiership and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He has been a member of the Upper House of Parliament since August 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can 
uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. 
Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this, things will revert, mm -hmm. but actually I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed 
without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, 
we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about 
is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer 
where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. 
and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, 
uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, for the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.